Okay, um, the last common ground thought that it would be useful to have a little bit of an introduction before we actually have the speakers talk about the initiative, an introduction to the initiative, um, and more specifically to actually talk about the existing statute a little bit because that's what the initiative changes. And so what I've got here is a short, uh, hopefully less than 10 minute presentation. We originally had asked someone from the Department of Fish and Game to come and give, deliver this, and they actually had agreed, but recently, like about a week and a half ago, the governor's office decided that no state employees should be uh, speaking in any public events on the initiative, um, partly because of their concern about the fact that state employees are supposed to stay um, unbiased and not advocate for or against ballot measures unless the legislature actually specifically funds them to do that. So, um, so I'm kind of standing in a little bit for fish and game here. Basically, um, first thing I want to do is, as John said, there's copies of the initiative um, on the side there, and I wanted to make sure people realize that the initiative actually was amended by the Supreme Court, and so if you're looking at a copy of the ballot measure, make sure you actually have one that shows the changes. There's actually only two, as I mentioned there, um, but they're significant. Before, without those changes, the Supreme Court had ruled that the initiative would be unconstitutional, so those are significant changes, and the official version from the um, Division of Elections actually just has those hand crossed out in red um, with hand notations in the margins. So it looks kind of, if you see our copy, it looks a little bit um, maybe Mickey Mouse-ish, but um, it's, it's not ours. It's from the Division of Elections, the official version. Um, moving along here, um, basically Fish and Game's existing authority, um, there's actually two specific parts of, it's referred to as Title 16, Alaska Statutes Title 16, and um, they're sometimes referred to as Title 16 permits, sometimes referred to as fish habitat permits. And I think in the discussion today, you'll probably hear people refer to both of them, but they're one and the same thing. They're habitat permits, Title 16 permits issued by the Department of Fish and Game, and they're under both the Fishways Act and the Anatomous Fish Act. The existing Fishway Act uh, requires that any obstruction built across fish-bearing waters will provide for fish passage, and it applies to all fish-bearing streams, resident and anadromous. I'll talk about anadromous fish in a second here, um, and requires um, that you allow for fish passage. And basically, the initiative uh, cha doesn't change most of the Fishways Act, but it actually does remove one provision that allows for hatcheries to be um, required or funded if um, you can't provide for fish passage. In other words, if you have a dam and you can't build a fish ladder or something, there's a provision in the statute that applies for, allows for hatcheries and that's eliminated under the initiative. So most of the initiative talks about anadromous fish and the reason why we wanted to specifically mention what anadromous fish are was because you'll hear the initiative is often labeled as stand for salmon but it actually deals with anadromous fish which is a lar slightly larger category than just salmon. Um, basically, the definition from the National Ocean Atmospheric Administration is that an adverse fish or fish that are born in freshwater spend most of their life at sea and return to freshwater to spawn. Fish and Game Habitat website says that that includes salmon, trout, char. So it's not just about salmon, it's about the anadromous fish, even though people will often just refer to this as a discussion about salmon. The existing act applies to any activity in anadromous fish waters and applies to any life stage of those fish. And it requires that um, basically any activity occurring below or near high water is subject to it. And the water body that is subject to that act has to be in the anadromous fish catalog. So it actually has to be a stream that has been identified and confirmed by Fish and Game as having uh, anadromous fish present there. 
And kind of the key language in that act is what you see up there, which is the commissioner shall approve the proposed construction work or use in writing unless the commissioner finds the plans and specifications are insufficient for the proper protection of fish and game. So that language is actually one of the things that's repealed by the initiative and replaced by the initiative. And these are just some of the types of things that Fish and Game routinely gives permits for under Title 16, uh, culverts, bridges, stream crossings, and so on. And a lot of these things are what people will be talking about today. Then Fish and Game says that over the last five years, they've averaged between 1,500 and 4,000 of these permits every year. This is the language that you'll see in the, um, when you walk into the ballot or into the uh, voting booth, and I won't try to read it or expect you to read it. It's actually very, um, wordy to say the least. So the rest of the, or a good part of the rest of my presentation is going to be to kind of just break that down a little bit. Um, basically, the proposed act would require Fish and Game to apply new standards to permitting activities and development projects that have the potential to harm fish habitat. The act would create fish and wildlife protection standards and the standards would address water quality, temperature, stream flow, and more. The proposed act defines an anatomous fish habitat. This is a significant change from the existing statute that it defines fish habitat to mean any naturally occurring permanent or intermittent seasonal water body and the bed beneath it and so on and so forth. And then including adjacent riparian areas um, that's in there and um, that contribute directly or indirectly to spawning, rearing, migration and overwinning of anatomous fish. So it's a broader definition. The existing statute defines anatomous fish habitat as those waters where anadromous fish have been documented are included in the catalog, in the catalog of anadromous waters. The initiative requires that fish and game presume that any stream that's a naturally occurring permanent or seasonal water body, including upstream tributaries that are connected to anadromous fish habitat, um, are considered anadromous waters, and fish and game can conduct site-specific assessments to determine if those actually are not uh, anadromous waters and don't need to be subject to the permitting requirements. So it basically flips the, the existing one is it has to be documented ahead of time before a permit's required. The initiative changes that so that um, the, um, it has to be basically any stream is assumed to be anadromous until found not anadromous basically. Um, the act defines significant adverse impacts it require fish and game to avoid or minimize adverse effects through mitigation measures and permit conditions. It would provide public notice on all permits and a chance to comment on major permits. The act would create criteria, timeframes, and appeal processes for the permits by interested persons and provides a 30-day period for reconsideration of determinations that are made um, in response to public comments. There's three levels of permits under the initiative, a general permit that's um, a single permit that can apply to many people, for example, for stream crossings or something like that. Minor permits that um, would be issued for activities that have little impact on anadromous fish. And then major permits, which are for larger projects and so on and requires a much more extensive process um, than the others. Section 12 of the initiative would exempt existing activities, operations, or facilities that have received all state and federal permits until a new permit authorization license or approval is needed. Basically, um, some of these, just a few of the new responsibilities for fish and game if the initiative passes. Um, they have to presume, again, this is that all naturally occurring water bodies are anadromous and require a process to determine that those that are not anadromous. Um, these are just a few of the other things that fish and game has to do. I won't actually go through those right now, but 
basically there's a lot of work for Fish and Game to actually implement the statute. Um, if the voters approve the initiative on November 1st, it would go into effect 90 days after the election is certified. Usually the election is certified several weeks after the actual election, after all the absentee and um, other ballots are counted. Fish and Game is required to develop regulations and procedures for implementation. And under the state constitution, the legislature can amend this, the initiative, but they cannot repeal it for at least two years. And that's actually in the state constitution. And with that, I'll turn it back to John. So are we clear? <laughs> Good night. So at this point, we're going to turn it over to, uh, to extend the conversation and expand it. Um, each of our panelists will get six minutes uh, to speak, uh, followed by uh, three minutes for each side for rebuttal. And if we actually get a conversation going, we're going we're gonna to let that go. Our timekeeper's right down here, so if you keep an eye on them, they'll let you know when you have a minute and 30 seconds left. We'll begin with Emily Anderson. Emily? Great. Thanks, everybody. Uh, and thanks for the opportunity to participate in this debate today. I know a lot of you love salmon, just like I do, um, for different reasons perhaps, but I know that we're all here because we do care about this resource. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter which, which side you're on in this case, uh, we all care about this resource, and I think that's a common place where we can all start. Um, <clears throat> like many of you, I greatly care about the future of Alaska, and especially our fisheries. For the last 13 years, I've worked as an attorney specializing in, in Alaska natural resource law. But that work is not the only thing that really drove me to love salmon in particular. Rather, it was my experience uh, being part of a fishing family and knowing what it's like to depend on a good fishing season and strong returns. Uh, it was also time that I've spent traveling around Alaska through my work, visiting communities and talking to people throughout the state that really depend on this amazing resource. And so for that reason, I am speaking today in support of Ballot Measure 1. On November 6th, Alaska voters will be faced with a critical decision at the polls when you are all asked to vote on Ballot Measure 1. At its core, Measure 1 seeks to update Alaska's 60-year-old law that was established to guide development that has the potential to impact habitat that supports our salmon and other anatomous fish. This effort is long overdue from my perspective and from many of our perspectives. Alaska has changed a lot over the last 60 years. Uh, if we hope to have healthy salmon runs now and in the future, we need to ensure that the law that protects Alaska's fish habitat and fisheries evolves to meet the realities of modern day development, the advancements in technology and scientific understanding that we have now, as well as the challenges associated with population growth and development in this state. If we want to have strong, healthy salmon fisheries in the future, we need to act now to ensure that we have a law in place that truly balances fish habitat protection and healthy salmon populations with responsible development. Now, there's no denying that salmon are one of our most important and vital natural resources. Salmon and other related fisheries support a $2 billion annual economy, 32,500 fishing jobs, communities around the state, and a way of life for thousands of Alaskans. In addition, in many areas of the state, our tourism economy is driven by visitors coming to Alaska to hunt and fish and view wildlife, supporting 43,000 jobs and adding $4.8 uh, billion annually to the economy. Now, when Alaska became a state, the drafters of the Alaska Constitution even recognized the value of these resources and created directives to protect salmon and other renewable resources. 
The Alaska's Constitution specifically reserves fish, wildlife, and water to the people of Alaska for common use. It directs the state to sustainably manage those resources, and it directs the legislature to equally prioritize the conservation of our natural resources with the utilization and development of them. And that is the balance that we seek to implement in Ballot Measure 1. Alaska is the last place in the United States that still enjoys healthy and sustainable salmon fisheries. But we can't simply manage harvest and expect our salmon populations to remain strong. We also need to have a strong habitat management system in place, especially during times of low returns. In tough times, the single most important thing that we can do to help our salmon species is to make sure that they have habitat to come back to. Now the problem is, is that Alaska's current law is extremely weak, and it's too general to sustainably manage our salmon species and our salmon fisheries. Under the current law, the Commissioner of Fish and Game shall issue a permit unless the plans for that project are insufficient for the proper protection of fish and game. Nothing in statute or regulations actually defines what the proper protection of fish and game is. Now that means that from administration to administration, oftentimes what we find is that this process dr varies dramatically in how these permits are issued and whether fisheries are actually protected or not. What the ballot initiative seeks to do is offer a solution to that problem, to strengthen Alaska law and buffer us against what has happened to other places that used to have salmon in the United States. Ballot Measure 1 creates habitat protection standards to define what the proper protection of fish and game is. And these standards create a science-based process to guide good decision-making. It creates a two-track permitting system to ensure that projects that pose little threat to fish habitat get a minor permit and are processed quickly. But projects like, for instance, the Pebble Mine are put on the major permit track to receive more scrutiny because they have the potential to damage Alaska's fisheries. It requires public notice for all permits and provides Alaskans for the first time an opportunity to review and comment under this system on major development activities that could harm our salmon species. It expands Fish and Game's ability to better protect fish habitat and it establishes a standard of care for fish habitat that encourages and incentivizes responsible development practices. Ballot Measure 1 is an effort to get Alaska ahead of the curve and put a strong fish habitat protection policy in place before we start making decisions that we can't take back. Contrary to what you may have heard on TV and radio, Ballot Measure 1 is not asking voters to choose between healthy fisheries and strong economy. That is a false choice. And I'm going to repeat that many times tonight. It is a false choice. Rather, Ballot Measure 1 ensures that we have a future that envisions both smart and responsible economic growth from all economic sectors and healthy runs for future generations. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. And now uh, from the uh, stand for Alaska, Clint, you have six minutes. Thank you. Good evening. I'm here tonight not be <laughs> Little microphone trouble here. I'm here tonight not because I work for the oil and gas industry or the mining industry or that I practice in natural resource law. I'm here as a person, a father raising three children who has spent the majority of his career focused on uh, public safety, focused on public service. If you had asked me three months ago, would you vote for salmon or would you vote for Stanford, Alaska, 
Not knowing anything else, I probably would have voted for Salmon. But I have volunteered and dedicated countless hours to read everything there is to read about this initiative. And I have come to the conclusion that this initiative is not about Salmon. It's about making it harder to develop other natural resources in Alaska. And that's why I strongly urge all of you to, to read what I have read and to come to the same conclusion that I've come to, that this measure should fail. There can be no dispute that if this initiative passes, it will be more difficult to develop our natural resources. There's no dispute about that. There's some hyperbole that it'll shut down industry. I hope that's not true, but there's no doubt that it's gonna be more difficult. We are not Washington State. Our laws are not weak. The, the advocates for this initiative are forced to admit, as they already have tonight, that our salmon habitats are healthy. They're healthy and they're vibrant. And because they're healthy and vibrant, we have a $2 billion a year salmon industry with over 30,000 jobs. We have a vibrant tourism industry because our salmon habitats are healthy under current law. My connection to the regulation of our salmon habitat came in 2012. At the time, I was serving as a state prosecutor, and I was asked to get involved in the prosecution of a man who had altered a salmon-bearing creek in the Matsu Valley. Prior to that case, I had had no conversation, no interaction, or understanding of what Department of Fish and Game fish biologists had done. But through that case, which was a successful criminal prosecution, I, be, I, I developed a great admiration for those biologists. And so when you hear that the biologists at the Department of Fish and Game are subject to the whims of an administration, you should pause and think about that. Those biologists are professional scientists. They are guided by science. And they are not going to be subject to the whims of an administration. And because of that, regardless of who's been elected to serve us in Juneau, the Department of Fish and Game has protected our salmon habitat. I, and I think all of us that, that are supporting Stand for Alaska, want to continue to have healthy salmon habitats. As Dick has said tonight, our Alaska's Anadromous Fish Act has been in place for decades. It does provide the discretion and the authority for the Department of Fish and Game to deny permits. The Anadromous Fish Act already requires that developers pay for the cost of damage to our salmon habitat. That is an existing law. Additionally, under Alaska's current laws, both federal and state, Alaskans have the right to weigh in, to provide public comment and input on projects that will affect our salmon habitat. Let me talk about what ballot measure number one is going to do if it passes. First, it will not allow the Department of Fish and Game to approve projects that it has approved in the past. There can be no doubt about that. There can only be a dispute about which projects will or won't get permitted in the future. Ballot measure number one will provide uncertainty to developers who want to develop our natural resources. Ballot measure, measure number one will dramatically expand the reach and jurisdiction of the Department of Fish and Game from where we are now, which is waterways that have been proven to bear salmon or to be uh, responsible for the rearing and the migration of salmon. Those waterways are currently protected under Alaska law, over 20,000 waterways. If ballot measure number one passes, the presumption will flip, and nearly every waterway will be subject to this presumption that they bear salmon, whether they're dry creek beds right now or not. And in order to develop a project, Alaskans and developers will have to prove that a negative, to prove that there, will no, that there are not salmon in that uh, waterway. Um, we'll talk more about what the definition of the waterway is, but it is a dramatic exp expansion. The agencies that will be directly affected by ballot measure number one have estimated it will cost the state approximately $3 million a year to implement the law. 
which will require the legislature and the governor's office to make decisions about how to spend state resources. The Department of Transportation in particular has indicated it's going to become more expensive and more time consuming to build and update our infrastructure. It'll be more difficult for everyday Alaskans to build docks and driveways. There can be no doubt about that. So as my time to, comes to an end here, I cherish salmon. My, salmon. my freezer is full of salmon right now, and I want my freezer to be full next summer and in the future. But I'm raising three kids, and I want them to have the economic opportunities that I've had in the time that I've been in Alaska. This initiative does not provide any public input or flexibility. What it, what it provides is an up or down vote. Alaskans are going to be asked to vote whether they think this law, eight pages, single-spaced, is a good thing or a bad thing for the future of Alaska. And if it doesn't work, the legislature has to wait two years before they can repeal it. I'm concerned about the, the damage that will be done to our economy in those two years and the years afterward. I urge you to vote no on ballot measure number one. Thank you, Clint. And now for the stand for salmon, Tim Troll. In studying the history of the decline of the salmon runs of the Pacific Coast, do I got it okay? All right, all right. Can everybody hear me now? Can I start my time over? In studying the history of the decline of the salmon runs of the Pacific Coast, it is striking to notice how invariably these declines are blamed on overfishing. These statements come most often from those least acquainted with the subject and are frequently made to cover up other causes, which may be of their own making. While it is true that overfishing is responsible for many declines, there is evidence to show that in numerous cases it is of minor or no consequence. The actual reasons are often found to be changes in the environment of the salmon due to natural and unnatural or man-made conditions. This is especially true of the freshwater stages of its existence. Many examples could be cited. Some of the natural ones are cyclic climate changes, floods, droughts, freezes, earthquakes, earth slides, beaver dams, and increases in predators. On the other hand, there are such man-made or unnatural causes as deforestation due to logging, hydroelectric, irrigation, flood control and navigation projects, pollution, especially from pulp mills, soil conservation and reclamation schemes, gravel washing and mining operations, and road construction such as stream culverts, insect control using poisonous sprays, and many others. The listing of these does not necessarily mean that all are inimical to the continuation of our salmon fisheries. It does mean, however, that if such projects are improperly and unwisely planned, the results will be disastrous to our fisheries. Alaska needs new industries, but not at the expense of our most important resource, which if properly cared for, will produce year after year. I wish those words were mine, but they're not. They were actually, uh, back in 1949, uh, the territory of Alaska formed a territorial fish board, mostly in response to the fact that they didn't like how the feds were managing our fisheries. So this statement actually comes from them in 1950. And they were mostly concerned, obviously, with managing the fisheries and dealing with the federal government and the overreach back then. But they were prescient enough to anticipate this day when Alaskans may actually be having to look more at the habitat issues than the management issues. So. Uh, this statement resonates with me when I discovered it in that first publication of the Alaska Territorial Board of Fisheries 10 years or more before we were actually a state. This sort of set the tone uh, for me. 
So uh, many of you, like many of you, probably I came up here, I didn't think much about salmon. And uh, the issue for me that is most compelling is um, this presumption issue. Ten years ago, I helped form a small team of scientists. Uh, we were in Bristol Bay dealing with the pebble mine. We had contacted the fisheries biologist with Pebble saying, are you guys going to be checking around up on the mine site for salmon in these little creeks and things? And we were basically told that they didn't think they were important. We contacted the Department of Fish and Game. You know, are you guys going to be up here like checking to make sure these things aren't, shouldn't be in the catalog? The answer then was basically, well, we weren't funded to do so. So we made an effort uh, to raise enough money to send a squad of six scientists up on the Pebble site, and some of them, I think, are here tonight, uh, 10 years ago, last month. And within a day, and it took the helicopter, had to raise probably, I don't know, several thousands of dollars, mostly volunteers, uh, and within a day, we found coho salmon on top of the Pebble deposit. Now, we don't know whether Pebble would have ever said anything about that, but that did begin at least from my standpoint, made me think that why are we doing all of this work with this catalog, with this documentation, and hopefully get a chance to describe what that's more like, to prove the obvious. Over the last five years after that, for a continuing five years or so, we did helicopter surveys all around the Bristol Bay region. And seven out of ten times, eight out of ten times, we would find salmon. So the question is, why is a nonprofit organization up here doing this work that Fish and Game should be doing? And why are we doing all this money to prove the obvious? So if you look at even Fish and Game's uh, website, and I wrote about this in the ADN a couple of weeks ago, yeah, they claim there's maybe 20,000 streams that are now in that catalog, but it's a fraction, only a fraction of what's likely to be out there. So if we're going to wait, so whether you agree our laws are adequate or not, they don't even apply to most of the salmon habitat we have in Alaska. And it will take fish and game utterly, God knows, millions of dollars and probably a century before we'd get everything in that catalog. So for me, it was an eye-opener to realize that yes, we have this process of getting fish into the catalog, but it's a very technical, complicated process. Something unimaginable probably to the folks at the Territorial Board of Fisheries back in the 50s. Um, and it's almost uh, so expensive now that it will literally be centuries before we actually were able to get everything in the catalog. So for me, why spend all that money to prove the obvious? We should have a presumption in Alaska. Yeah, it's going to make it a little more difficult. But in Alaska, salmon are everywhere for the most part. And we should not hide that fact or pretend that they are not there. And our current law actually allows us to pretend that they're not there. All right, thank you, Tim. And next up speaking, uh, Stand for Alaska, Bob Leffler. Bob? Uh, does this work? Uh, I'm not sure. Oh, okay, forget it. Sorry. On November 6th, you're not going to be voting whether you like Fisher development. On November 6th, you're not going to be voting whether we're too easy on industry or too hard on industry. On November 6th, you're going to be voting for very specific language in this ballot measure. 
the language matters, and I'd like to use three examples to show you the problems created by the language, by inflexible standards that are not now used by Fish and Game, by prohibiting off-site mitigation, and by, by creating a permit process that's insufficiently flexible. Let me look to the native village, the native fishing village of Chignik Lagoon for my first example. The, um, the fishing village is on the Alaska Peninsula. Behind the village is Packers Creek, a steep creek with a few Dolly Varden in it. In 2015, the village put up a diversion and diverted half the creek into a pipe for about 3,000 feet. Goes down to a powerhouse, which generates electricity for the village, and then back to the creek. That diversion takes about half of the volume of the creek. So let's see how the, how the initiative would affect that. Well, the initiative has a part that says standards. It says, when issuing a permit under these statutes, the commissioner shall ensure the proper protection of anadromous fish habitat by maintaining the natural and seasonal flow. So the community is very proud of their hydro project. It makes the village silent. They can turn off their diesels. But it doesn't maintain the natural flow. There are a few Dolly Varden that have to, that have, to have a few, some, less fit, some less water. Generally, if that was a concern, what you would do is you'd say, well, we need to make some new Dolly Varden habitat so there's no net loss, and we should do it as close as we possibly can to where this fish loss is. But this ballot initiative prohibits fish and game from using that as a mechanism. So it fails the standard. Don't allow us to, to make new habitat. This, this project would have been illegal under, <clears throat> under this initiative and the village would still be on diesel. Just around the corner, Chignik Lake is the same way. They want to develop a hydro project, but they'll have to stay on diesel. All through Alaska, there, there are multiple projects which would, be, which would fail under this standard. Actually, Bradley Lake would have failed. So many villages hoping to use the renewable hydropower would be frustrated. Let me go to a different example, which uses slightly different language. This initiative requires fish and game to regulate habitat and riparian areas for wildlife, even on private land. And let's see how this could play out for transportation. Imagine you're a homeowners association, southeast somewhere, maybe a native corporation. You need a road to access your land through a narrow valley. Well, the road, that means the narrow valley must go for a couple of miles, say through moose habitat right next to a stream that is in the riparian area. Well, let's look at the standard again. The standard says, when issuing a permit, the commissioner shall, there's no discretion, ensure the proper protection by maintaining riparian areas that support fish and wildlife habitat. There's no discretion. They shall maintain adjacent fish and wildlife habitat. Now, what they could do if this, now actually, uh, moose habitat isn't regulated by fish and game, especially on private land, but if you wanted to, you'd say, well, if, you, if we're going to affect private land and we're going to change moose habitat, we should make new ones. It's not that difficult to make it, but of course, of course, it, <clears throat> this doesn't allow fish and game to, to do what they call off-site compensation. So an inflexible standard, this one regulating habitat on private land, and no compensation would make this project fail, a very common project for around Alaska. The language of the emissions initiative matters and the inflexible approach near any water has serious implications 
for transportation around Alaska. But let me use a third example. I want to consider how the permit process affects it. Not just any permit process, but the process that's specific to this language. Imagine you're constructing a road, either a long driveway to your cabin or near a native village or somewhere in Alaska. You have all the equipment mobilized to your site. In late June, it pours. You get a horrible rainstorm. You find a number of riblets in the dry, in the, in the dry tundra that you didn't know were there, and so you need a culvert you didn't expect. You need to reroute those riblets to that culvert. Well, those are presumably anadromous, even if you don't think there's fish. And the consequence, you'll need a major or minor permit, probably a major permit, because you both need a culvert and are rerouting presumably anadromous streams. A major permit takes between three and six months by the plain steps in this process. You've lost your construction season. That's a major financial burden for you and your driveway or native villages, and it didn't protect fish. Now, I believe we can protect fish, and I believe we can protect salmon, and I believe we can have economic development, but I do not believe the language in here allows us to do that. So, what do I think in general? I think language matters. I think it's not about do we like fish, is fish good, is salmon good, is our law outdated? I think it's the combination of very stringent and flexible standards, long processes, and prohibiting offsite compensation. This language has serious consequence for individuals who want to do things, for mining, oil and gas, forestry, and transportation. And what I'm hoping is that we can get into these details throughout the night. Thank you, Bob. At this point, I'm going to open it up to the panel here um, and give you each uh, a two minutes, a couple of minutes. But um, I'm really more interested in a conversation. So you don't have to take up your entire two minutes, and we'll keep it going as long as the conversation is interesting. Um, but this is your opportunity to challenge what you've heard um, somebody at the other table say, and we'll begin with uh, Stan for Salmon. Thanks. Well, I think what I'll do is just, just address what Bob just talked about here. Um, you know, this is unfortunately what we've been hearing are a lot of scare tactics, a lot of things, oh my gosh, the sky is falling, you're never going to be able to step in a river again, you're never going to be able to uh, mow your lawn because there might be a puddle in the way. I mean, this is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. So let me just address one of these pieces. Um, the permit process to construct a road across your property if it rains and there might be a puddle. I mean, that is obviously not the definition of anadromous fish habitat. If you actually look at the language of the initiative, if you actually look at the language of the initiative, you will see that this is a common sense definition. These are waters that are connected to marine waters or to other waters that are already listed in the anatomous waters catalog. Those are the waterways that we know that fish are often migrating of. Clearly, you're not gonna find salmon in a puddle in your yard. You're not gonna find salmon running up a rivulet across the tundra. That's not where you find salmon. These are areas where, that are connected to river systems. And this is just common sense. That's the reason why we're tr we have a very common sense definition in the law. The other thing is, is that there's no change in the definition of the law of anadromous fish habitat. Fish and Game defines anadromous fish habitat on their own website as waters that directly and indirectly support the spawning, rearing, and migration of anadromous fish. 
If you actually look at the definition of the, in the statute or in the draft of the ballot initiative, you'll find very similar language in that. And so I guess what I'd like is to everybody to have an open mind. If we want to talk about projects, we should go back and forth about the accuracy of whether those projects can actually get permitted or not, and not just take it as, as gold that every puddle is going to be considered anadromous water. Thank you, Emily. Stan, for Alaska, you have Actually, the floor. I don't think every puddle is going to be considered a national, uh, an anadromous water. And so if that was the implication, I apologize. What it means is any upstream tributary that's connected to anadromous water, even if it's uh, perennial or seasonal. So my hypothetical example was that it rained and you had a seasonal flow that you didn't expect and that you had a number of seasonal flows which went down and connected. It was really not about a puddle. And I believe that under this definition, if it connects, it's an upstream tributary, that it's seasonal during rainstorms, it, it falls under the definition. Actually, that's not true because it talks about intermittent waters. Those are defined differently as ephemeral waters, which are ephemeral waters are caused by rain events. Intermittent waters are caused usually rivers that occasionally in the summertime might dry up in a in a warm a warm seasonal time but oftentimes they are often very much connected during the winter time that's what we're talking about it has nothing to do with ephemeral waters those are exempt from the permitting process response is that how you read it that's just scientific definitions just so it's clear i mean um, Ms. Anderson's referring to terms that are not included in the initiative. She's referring to what may or may not be in, uh, on the fishing game website. Let me read for you what the current definition of an adverse fish habitat are, are, is under current law. It requires the commissioner to specify rivers, lakes, streams, or portions of them that are important to the spawning, rearing, or migration of an adverse fish. That's our current definition. It's co that's common sense. We're talking about streams, rivers, and lakes, the things that we would typically expect to bear salmon. The new definition in this initiative is a naturally occurring permanent or intermittent seasonal water body and the bed beneath, including all sloughs, backwaters, portions of the floodplain covered by the mean annual flood and adjacent riparian areas that contribute directly or indirectly to the spawning, rearing, migration, or overwintering of anadromous fish. Even Dick, when he read this to you, said, and so on and so forth. It's a long definition. What we're asking Alaskans to do, what these initiative advocates are asking them to do, is for all of you to understand what that means when you go into a polling booth and you've got 30 seconds, 45 seconds, you're being asked to say, I think I know what that means, I think I know how far that extends, and I'm gonna vote yes. That's what you're being asked to decide. Well, I would just, I would just suggest that, um, you know, I know you're kind of new to this issue, and you're not a natural resource lawyer, but I would suggest that you go to the Fishing Game website and you actually look at the definition section on the Fishing Game website, defining what an adramus fish habitat is, in defining what a slough is, defining what an intermittent water body is, defining what an ephemeral water body is. All of those are in existence, and the initiative incorporates almost verbatim what those definitions are. I guess my response to that is I'm not a natural resource lawyer. I'm not pretending to be one, but I've practiced law for 20 years. I've spent dozens and dozens of hours of reading this, and I, apparently I don't have it figured out yet. But what's important in the point that Ms. Anderson made is that the Department of Fish and Game has the flexibility and the discretion to further define anadromous fish habitats under their current laws and regulations. They already have that flexibility under current law. So why is it necessary for such an overbroad, overreaching statute to be passed in this manner? 
Okay, and we're going to give each other the equal opportunity to that. Um, we're getting a lot of questions, so I'm going to begin with a question for Stan for Salmon. Given the amount of debate and various concerns over this ballot measure, knowing what you know now, would the initiators of the ballot measure craft it differently if they could do it all over again? And you have two minutes to answer. So whenever we look at crafting a law, um, you know, we want to make sure we vet it. And one of the ways that this particular ballot initiative was vetted was through a three-year process. One, we started at the Board of Fish. The Board of Fish, basically the proposal uh, that was submitted to the Board of Fish asked them and requested them to take a look at the law and ask, is this adequate? Is this going to protect our fisheries for our future? And the answer from the Board of Fish was no. They made a recommendation to the legislature using an idea that, and some of the standards that they were actually thinking about in the sustainable salmon policy that the Board of Fish has created and crafted, and said to the legislature, we need to update this law. It is insufficient, and we need you to act on this. The legislature took it up and drafted HB 199. HB 199 was heavily vetted as well. There was a lot of uh, feedback, there was a lot of testimony from the public, there was a lot of testimony from industry, there was a lot of testimony from the agencies that came in. There were several iterations of HB 199 that was drafted. There was a lot of vetting that was going on. And at the same time, the initiative was being drafted. And all of that input was also taken into consideration of the initiative. Now, I will say no law is ever drafted perfectly. Uh, that's the reason why if this initiative passes, which I hope it does, the legislature immediately has an opportunity to look for small amendments that might make it more fluid. If they see something that they're really, really find problematic, they can make amendments to it. The other thing is just like any other law, you can make bigger amendments to it as time goes on. And finally, Fish and Game will also have the opportunity to craft regulations, which is a very public process where industry, citizens, People that care about salmon will all have public input and an opportunity to share in that experience and make sure that this is the best law for the state of Alaska. Thank you. Stan, Stan for Alaska, you have one minute. My understanding is when <clears throat> SB1, HB 199 went through the legislature, it had to be rewritten to something different because they realized that it, it was insufficient as it was being, as it was being considered. So it was, it, it was amendment. I don't know if the amendment was actual or the committee substitute was introduced or not, but the, all the wind came out of the sails when in fact they realized that to make it work, they had to do something that, was, that, was, that didn't resemble this. And as a result, this was gonna be on the ballot anyway. The way it works is if the legislature does something similar, an, an, an initiative comes on the ballot. Since they couldn't do something similar and make it work, the initiative was gonna be on the ballot anyway and it took a lot of the wind out of the sails. So I think this was, so there we go. And by the way, I still think if you have a seasonal connection during big rainstorms, it falls under the definition. All right, thank you. Now we have a question for Stan for Alaska. How would you change the initiative to make it acceptable to you? So, uh, two minutes. Sure. <clears throat> if you've got the initiative in front of you, <clears throat> If, if what we're trying to do is to emphasize the importance of salmon and our salmon habitat, I would be comfortable with section one. If the initiative was section one, that would be consistent with the public messaging from Stand for Salmon that reads 
<clears throat> Alaska's fish habitat policy is, is wild salmon are critically important to our communities, economies, and cultures, and it's the policy of the state of Alaska to ensure sustainable fisheries, to protect our resources, water resources and habitat, to ensure development activities comply with enforceable standards, ensure that the Department of Fish and Game protects the natural fishery resources. That's the sort of broad, broad guidance that the legislature needs. And all of us as Alaskans could get behind that and say, yeah, legislature, there are a lot of competing interests. You've got a limited amount of time. But why don't you go spend some time coming up with a more robust and let's have a public de debate about what that, what that enforcement mechanism will be. But what we're being forced to do is to s swallow this whole with, you know, I find it ironic, really. Ms. Anderson says, the legislature has essentially failed to protect our salmon habitat for 60 years. And so as a last resort, this initiative is necessary to protect our habitat. But on the other hand, she says, if I'm wrong, if we're wrong, if we didn't get it right, Let's, we, we can rely upon the legislature to fix it in January 2019. That's just not realistic. The, le the legislature won't know. They're, they're not going to be able to dissect this in January, and it's going to be too late if it passes. Thank you. One minute. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was present for all of the testimony on HB 199, which there was a lot of it that was coming in. But, you know, in one of the final iterations of HB 199, which was a very, very trimmed down version of the original HB 199, there were many, many, many industry representatives that were there and found the entire thing acceptable, unacceptable, excuse me, except for one piece which is they would relent and say, we support public notice. That was it. Not even a public process, not anything, not habitat protection standards, not a public process. Basically, it was all only public notice that was acceptable. And fr frankly, that is not and should not be acceptable to the people of Alaska. These are public assets that we're talking about. And at the very minimum, we need to have public notice and an opportunity to participate in important decisions that impact our fisheries. Thank you. And right now, um, the panel, panelists are going to get an opportunity to ask each other a question. And we'll begin with uh, a question from Stan for Alaska. Uh, two minutes to respond and then a one-minute uh, rebuttal. Okay, here we go. Sort of as an example of inflexible standards, let's look at emergencies. In 2015, breakup resulted in 12 feet of ice buildup in the Sag River south of Prudhoe Bay. Flooding closed the Hall Road. The Alaska Pipeline com completed swift preventative measures on the waterway to protect the pipeline. Their activity would have required both minor and major permits under this initiative. Because we didn't have the initiative, Fish and, Fish and Game was able to go on site, give the permits quickly with appropriate protections for the river. The quick action protected the integrity of the pipeline. This initiative creates two public processes before a permit can be issued. It has no provision for emergencies. So if this initiative passes, how do we protect ourselves from floods that require quick action? Now, I do know the law has, uh, has an emergency, but only for riparian owners. But for everyone else, what do you do when you need an emergency and you need to do something? Riparian owners are considered also the state of Alaska as a riparian owner. And so that emergency exception and exemption to the permitting process, it does apply to those types of situations. And that is still in effect, and the ballot initiative doesn't change that. Well, Alaska Pipeline wasn't the state of Alaska. 
there's a lot of things that go through private, a lot of waterways that go through private land and go through native land. And further, if you, the person who gets the permit is the, is the person who is responsible for following the permit. We don't want the state to be applying for the permits if in fact it's an industry which needs to do the work. What I'm saying though is the state can step in as a riparian owner and issue those permits in emergency situations. If, if the state is the, if, is the riparian owner. In the places where the state is not the riparian owner, they can't. Okay, and now we have an opportunity uh, for a question from Stan for Salmon. I know. Yeah. It's all right. Yeah. I just got in at the last minute. I was here for beer and pizza, and please don't eat all the beer. <laughs> I want to be able to use this before the night's over. All right, go ahead. Okay, I'll do it. All right, over the last 10 years, legal protections of fish and wildlife habitat have been systematically eroded by various administrations and state legislatures. Many laws have been streamlined to cut out the public and amend or approve clear mandatory standards in the law. In 2003, for example, the Murkowski administration went so far as to actually remove the habitat division from Fish and Game and move it over to DNR, uh, basically to quiet the agency. Fortunately, uh, that was changed. But under the Parnell administration, more damage was done when DNR systematically revised the special area management plans to weaken habitat protections and fish and wildlife. We actually saw that with the Bristol Bay Area plan. But perhaps the worst blow was the repeal of the Alaska Coastal Management Program in 2011. The ACMP propped up ADF&G's legal authority by allowing the state and local governments to create habitat and fisheries protection standards in coastal areas of the state and required a public process. The loss of the ACMP was actually a huge blow to ADF&G's authority. Sorry, Tim, but we need a question. We're one minute in. All right, I got it. <laughs> Stand for Alaska claims that adequate legal protections for salmon are in place. These are actual facts, the ones I recited. How do all of these rollbacks constitute adequate protection? Two minutes. I think the answer is twofold. One, I don't think a lot of the rollbacks, as you, some of the rollbacks, as you, as you uh, put them, as you said, didn't really occur. So Dick and I, director during part of that time and I did not I did not decrease any standards in our area plans for fish and wildlife habitat I do not believe that to be the case second I also don't <clears throat> the Alaskan public rejected uh, an initiative to put the, the put the coastal management program back in about 62 percent to whatever the difference is 6238 the public spoke about it because I, because I believe it was bureaucratic relative to what it did. I don't believe it, it increased the level of, of habitat protection the way you say it did. And third and most important is I don't believe that we've seen decreases in, in, uh, in habitat, decreases in fish loss because of that. That is, you don't look at what happened at the Kensington mine on the North Slope, and we don't see any changes in what Fish and Game's done since those have happened. If I look at what's happened, um, so there we go. That was it. One minute. And, you know, I always seem like I have another thought that just doesn't <laughs> get there. Well, I, I can only, I'll speak directly to the Bristol Bay Area Plan. I can't remember when you were there, 
but in the 2005 revision of the Bristol Bay Area Plan, basically all the habitat classifications were reduced just to the river corridors, and huge swaths were just uh, became general use areas. And of course, that gen and a lot of that was done really without the folks in Bristol Bay even knowing it was occurring. Uh, and also remove things like automatic in-stream flow reservations that were part of the area plan. The area plan? And, well, and so ultimately that resulted in a lawsuit, as you know. A bunch of tribes took the state uh, to court over that. And we did get some revisions and put a lot of habitat protections back in place in the area plan in 2013. I don't believe there were automatic in-stream flow in that area, area plan. Um, it also, the area plan added a number of other things. It added a mitigation standard, which wasn't there in the old one. And the second thing, which, um, I'm sorry, the 2005, whatever they, or the one before that, added the mitigation standard. And the habitat, the habitat standard, the habitat classification was used essentially as general use in the old one. It wasn't intentionally to take habitat away. And I'm fine with many of the revisions, but I don't believe it had the effect you did, nor can I believe you that you can point to any permit in that area that was changed because of that habit, because of the plan. Okay, thank you. Um, I think, is Stan for Alaska, if you have another question for Stan for Salmon, here's your opportunity. We got, we got lots of questions, so. Uh, uh, you have said that ballot measure number one would force foreign mining corporations to pay for the cleanup of mega development projects so Alaska's taxpayers won't bear the, the cost of cleanup. Under current law and under Alaska statute 1605881, developers are already required to bear the cost of restoring rivers, lakes, streams to their original condition. Can you cite to any mega development projects that Fish and Game has ever asked a developer to clean up that they haven't? Two minutes. Uh, no, go ahead if you have a, I have a comment about that. Okay. Uh, well, the bond requirement that you're actually referring to, um, it is in 1605881, uh, but it's discretionary. It's a discretionary bond requirement, meaning that the Department of Fish and Game doesn't always have to require a bond. And as far as cleanup, I mean, we can, we can talk about all sorts of different cleanup opportunities. Um, the, Placer mine that was, or excuse me, the platinum mine, um, it was a huge, huge disaster. Uh, that was run by an Australian mining company that skipped town after basically discharging tons and tons and tons of wastewater into the Salmon River. And they'd never cleaned up their mess, even though they did, were required under law to post a bond. It was an inadequate bond, and then they skipped town. So that's just one example. Um, and then we have other examples in the state where the bond requirement has not been adequately posted. Um, you know, the Greens Creek mine, for instance, has a $26 million bond, except that that is estimated to only last for seven years after they're finished mining. Uh, the, the estimate is that they're going to need money for 100 years, and that bond does not exist. And so there are inadequate bonds that have been issued for a variety of mines. I'm not suggesting the Greens Creek mine is a bad mine. I'm just suggesting that the state hasn't required an adequate bond. I've just got two responses. First is I do think the platinum mine was a problem. And I'm very glad they were prosecuted. 
They were prosecuted by, if my sister's out here, um, by people in my sister's office. She was a federal prosecutor. And she's prosecuted people from f in mining, in fisheries, in oil and gas, all those people occasionally do bad things, and they should be prosecuted as they were under this case. With respect, the, the question, however, was not about the bond. It is where, well, the question was asked was where the state has spent any money, and what message was, did the state have to clean up? The state did not end up cleaning up the platinum mine. The underlying claim owner, that is the operator, skipped town, as Emily said, but the underlying claim owner spent his own money to do the reclamation. So the question still remains and wasn't answered, where have we cleaned up the mess? And as someone who has been in mining since the reclamation, since 1996, I do not believe the state has spent any money having to reclaim an abandoned mine that was um, abandoned since the reclamation law took effect in 1991. Clearly, clearly prior to environmental laws they did. But I don't see any messes, and the state hasn't spent any, and that was really the question. Well, I mean, you just hit the nail on the head, which is the, the mining law and the reclamation law took place in 1991. Most of our mines are still in operation, and so we're yet to see how that actually plays out. Well, we've had, two, we've had a number of mines closed. Some went into bankruptcy, and even the mines went into bankruptcy were not, didn't require any state money to clean up. Can you cite specific examples? Oh, sure. Illinois Creek went into bankruptcy, and we managed to reclaim it without a dime of federal money. It had no violations, and now we have a million-dollar permanent fund to monitor that mine in case anything goes wrong. Nixon Fork went into bankruptcy. It came out of bankruptcy, and, it's, and it operated for a while, and closed and opened and closed and opened, but there's been no issue. All right, thank you. I have lost track. Have each of you had a, an opportunity to ask two questions? Okay. Thank you. Keep me honest. Okay, we're going to go back to another question from the audience. And this is for, for both of you, so you'll each have a couple minutes to discuss this. It's just a simple question. How much input should local communities have on development projects in their community? A lot. Yeah. I'm there. I believe they should have a lot. And I, for example, let me use as example, the Donlin Creek mine had something like 65 public meetings by government agencies. It had up four, over 400, um, uh, 400 meetings by the company, some in Yupik. It had, um, uh, some of them were translated. It had 9.5 months of, of public comment period. In many of those meetings, the, the, what was going to happen to fish was, was discussed. I do believe that there should be, that it is reasonable to have the public discuss um, those projects, and I think that happens everywhere. Well, I'm really glad you brought up Donlin, quite frankly. Um, two weeks ago, the Department of Fish and Game issued 13 fish habitat permits for the Donlin mine. Those fish habitat permits allow the mine to destroy 30 miles of salmon streams and pollute a third. Uh, that is support Chinook. And despite 
communities in the region requesting consultation and public hearings from the Department of Fish and Game because the law doesn't require any public notice, notice or opportunity to participate in those processes. Those, claim, or those um, requests were denied. The only, the only entity that the Department of Fish and Game met with in creating those permits were the two outside mining companies that were developing that project. That was it. And those permits were issued despite cries from the communities in the region requesting public consultation on those specific permits. I guess I'm fine with consultation on the specific permits. I do think that's okay. But I think that the notion that there wasn't consultation um, is just wrong. Uh, my understanding is that what the, what the permits were for is that there was 0.7 miles of salmon habitat that went under, and as a result, they were required to build two, two, miles, <clears throat> uh, two miles of equivalent habitat that connected to about 12 acres of pond habitat right nearby. Um, and there was a lot of tribal consultation throughout that process. Now, whether it was with Fish and Game or not, I believe it was with all of the agencies. Um, they all attend, uh, they all use the large mine process to, uh, to do the consultation through the IEIS process. I think the, we could go back to the question of whether we need public participation in this process. The point here is that the Department of Fish and Game is tasked with looking with a laser focus at whether or not our projects that we're looking at developing are impacting our fisheries and salmon habitat. The federal government, through their public processes, whether it's the NEPA process or in the development of an EIS, of course they have opportunities for public comment, but they are looking broadly at environmental impacts. It is mandatory for our state because fish, wildlife, and water are public assets that belong to the people of this state. It is mandatory, and it should be mandatory, that our department that is tasked with protecting our fisheries should be also listening to the public before they issue these permits and not only to the developer. Um, just quickly, uh, uh, one of the things that's probably relevant is that Donald Creek couldn't be permitted under this, under this process. So this process, because it fails, the it would fail the standard and you're not allowed to have off-site <clears throat> to count off-site um, mitigation. That is, if you're, you're not allowed to count the, the salmon habitat it was producing towards the permit, um, Donlin couldn't be permitted under this uh, initiative. And, okay, so now I, we have another question from the audience. This is for Stand for Salmon. Are you concerned that ballot measure one could make it harder to develop large renewable energy projects? Could this slow down our ability to shift to renewable energy and address climate change? Two minutes. <laughs> so, you know, I've, I've actually gotten this question a, a bunch of times. I mean, I think that we are all interested in making sure that we have a renewable energy future in the state of Alaska. And I think that um, there are many, many projects that are are very ripe for the taking here and will be is certainly allowed under the ballot initiative. I had, um, you know, for three years I worked on uh, 
basically with a coalition of, of folks that were very interested and very concerned about the Susitna River when the state of Alaska was proposing to develop the Susitna Hydro Project. Now that would have been the second tallest dam in the United States on one of our biggest Chinook producers in the state. And we know what happens when you build those types of projects. We've seen it in the lower 48 and it causes irreversible damage. But in that discussion and in that um, learning about that project, for three years I went to all sorts of hydropower conventions all over, the, all over the United States because I wanted to actually talk about, talk to people that were in the industry and what the new technologies that, that were that were available, because the Susitna project was a relic technology. And what we're seeing right now, and this is all over the lower 48, and it can certainly be applied here in Alaska, and it has been applied here in Alaska, are these renewable energy projects that are what we call low-impact low hydro projects, for instance. Because they're low-impact and they're classified as low-impact because we're thinking about how it impacts fisheries. There are ways to operate and design these projects to provide renewable energy for communities all over the state without the devastating impacts to fisheries. We do have that technology available, not to mention wind and tidal power and all of the other things that we have opportunities for here in Alaska to make sure that we have a, a really good renewable energy future for our state. Thank you, Pat. I'd like to answer the question. The short answer to the question is that <clears throat> if if you dewater a portion of a stream, as most hydro projects do, if you don't maintain the natural flow, it fails the standard. And so they would be illegal, especially because you can't count off-site mitigation. The small impact hydro project that I used as an example at Ch Chignik Lagoon is a good example. The answer is it would prohibit them. Follow up. Follow up. Um, that's just not true. Um, the thing is, is that, you know, what we've seen is we have we actually, there, okay, I'm gonna geek out here just for a second, but uh, in this, when I was doing all this hydropower research, um, what I found is that Alaska has many hydropower projects in the state that have been actually certified by the Low Impact Hydropower um, Center. And that is a certification that is hard to get, but it's one of those certifications that many communities in this state have, have done because most of these communities rely on fisheries just as much as any of us do. And the, the pursuit of making sure we have renewable energy uh, in these communities is often not tied to destroying those fisheries. We need to make sure that we're doing them both. And most of these communities have developed hydropower projects that are fish-safe hydropower projects. And that is what we're seeing throughout Alaska. We're already advancing those new technologies. We're already utilizing those things. And there are ways to operate and design these projects to make sure we are maintaining in-stream flow in such a way that we are not hurting our fisheries. Thank you, Ellie. Stand for Alaska. I don't know what that. I don't know what that is. All I know, the law says that just you have to maintain the natural flow. So I think we should go on. All right. The next question is for you. As a matter of fact, it's a question for Bob. It says, uh, <laughs> "Stand for Salmon has brought up a lot of talk about the need to clean up the mess left behind by mining. How much money has the state spent cleaning up the mining mess in the last two decades?" Zero. Um, I started in 1996, or reclamation law started in, in 1991. Since that time, the Department of Natural Resources has spent no money, ha has needed to spend no money reclaiming mines not left by 
uh, by developers. Pardon me? When I got the call to do this uh, gig, uh, my brother-in-law, Bill Hansen here, uh, we were taking a tour of mining company around up in the Yukon. And we went to this little town of Faro. And Faro's a lovely little place out on the Campbell Highway, gorgeous. Uh, and I was kind of curious as to why that town was there. Well, there was a big lead zinc mine there back in the 90s and quit in the 90s. It was Canadian. Uh, well, what happened to the mine? Well, they went bankrupt, and now the Canadian government, the Yukon government, is basically subsidizing the town. And I think that's what, certainly in Bristol Bay, when we were looking at whether the state has spent any money cleaning up things, is what is going to happen when we have a mine, say, like Pebble, that went in, uh, that really may not really have an end to it. We're actually looking at something that's going to be around forever, and who's going to be running that forever when we have Canadian mining companies uh, who kind of like bankruptcy. Um, so that's, that would be a major concern of ours, uh, certainly in Bristol Bay, in dealing with uh, mining in the future. Bob, would you like a follow-up? I'm not sure I do. Yeah. It's okay. You don't have to. At this point, we will uh, go back to questions from the panels to each other. And this time, we will start with Stan for Salmon with a question. So often, uh, policy debates over the protection of our fisheries turns on the issue of economic growth. Uh, large extraction, extractive resource development corporations often argue that our laws need to be streamlined to produce economic growth and that any public process or per in a permitting system that calls for actual review of potential impacts is simply too burdensome. Too often, policymakers choose the short-term economic gain over the long-term investment strategy. But what we really need to be asking ourselves is, what do we stand to lose and what does it mean economically for the state if we don't protect salmon habitat? Alaska's fishing industry is the largest private employer in the state and adds $2 billion in economic a annual activity. In contrast, the state of Washington alone, the state has spent billions of dollars in an attempt to recover endangered and threatened salmon species. Those salmon declines are directly tied to habitat loss. How can Stand for Alaska argue, as we've seen on TV commercials, that investing in the long-term health of our fisheries is anything but a good investment for the state of Alaska? Well, I think the question is, is directed at industry, and I don't represent industry. I'm here as an Alaskan who is concerned about the complexity of this ballot initiative. Anyone that's sat in this room for the last half an hour can't come to any other conclusion, but the initiative's not clear. You've got highly experienced, educated people that are arguing about what it means. What I know as a lawyer is that when there's uncertainty, when the laws are unclear, you know who benefits? Lawyers because we get paid to go in there and argue for our side. And so, in a sense, this initiative is great for lawyers. It could, I've heard it described as a lawyer's paradise. Uh, I've met with folks from Stanford, Alaska. Nobody is advocating for the end or the demise of the salmon industry. We believe that the salmon industry is healthy, that it can remain healthy under current law. But with, there can be no doubt that the economic growth will be slowed down, if not 
dramatically slow down if this initiative passes. The questions that have been posed to Ms. Anderson and Mr. Troll have not been answered. She was asked specifically, would this slow down the permitting of projects? And the answer to that question is yes. It would slow it down. And what message does that send to those that want to invest and develop our natural resources? It suggests that it's going to be more time consuming, more expensive, and not as good of an investment as it is today. I'll only add that the Donlin mine was a seven-year EIS permitting process. Um, that Fort Knox was, was or rather, our next recent one, I think, was Pogo, was three and a half years. I don't think short time is a, has really been a problem. You have one minute. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe I stepped away for a minute, but I don't remember being asked about that question about whether it slows down the process. But I do know that what, when we're looking at large development projects, um, what actually functionally happens with these large development projects, and you're on a permitting system, you have to get a lot of permits, absolutely. Um, but those permits are put on a timeline, basically. The hardest ones to get are applied for first, and you make sure that in your timeline you're, you're applying for the permits to make sure you keep your project on schedule. Simply because you have a law that is actually going to require the Department of Fish and Game to produce a document for large major development projects that actually analyzes the impacts to those fisheries resources and allows for public review does not mean that your project is necessarily slowed down. It does mean that the public has an opportunity to look at those documents to make sure that when that project is approved, if that project is approved, that is in the best interests of Alaskans. And again, I just want to remind everybody here that this is a public asset. We should have the opportunity to look at what the state is planning to do if they are planning of disposing of our fisheries resources for other uses. Thank you. Do we have a rebuttal? I think we've gone over it. Okay. I think we've gone over it enough. I okay. Now you you have an opportunity to ask a question. Okay. Um, the initiative doesn't allow mitigation to count if it's on another portion of a water body. I know a number of bush villages where extending the airport will affect a, wep a wetland, which would be anadromous under this initiative. The F FAA doesn't like airports to recreate water bodies next to the airport because they don't like birds near an airport. Since it's safer for people, why shouldn't we be able to recreate wetlands on another water body where it's safer? The initiative creates a requirement for restoration and on-site mitigation. The reason why the initiative does that is because off-site mitigation has been widely abused over time. The Clean Water Act, for instance, had an amendment in the 90s that allowed for off-site mitigation. Essentially what that does is it creates a big loophole in the law. It allows for folks to make sh basically not meet the protective standards of the law instead of pay their way out it, through off-site mitigation. For instance, the Pebble Project, when it was you know, originally proposed, one of the off-site mitigation proposals was to you know, disrupt a huge amount of the valuable salmon habitat in Bristol Bay, but the proposal was, well, we're going to do this, but in order to gain support federally for this, we're going to set aside and save some land in California. That was the off-site mitigation proposal. And honestly, that should be unacceptable. Now, there is some flexibility in the initiative for Fish and Game to 
um, analyze what on-site mitigation is. It doesn't necessarily mean like right there at the airport. It can be in a safe distance away. It allows fishing game that opportunity. The uh, Alaska Supreme Court in looking at that provision also recognized that there's enough flexibility for fishing game to approve projects and make sure that they're doing so in the right way. One minute, Bob. Yes. Um, the requirement under the, the actual language, because you're, we're voting about actual language, is that you can't count mitigation if it's not on the same water body or the same segment. So if you have a water body big enough that you can go to the other side, it passes. If it's a different water body, fish and game doesn't get to count it. Now, I know people don't like Pebble, and I don't really want to talk about Pebble, but I do want to bring this up. With respect to using land in California, I heard that was that come up, so I called them, because I, I worked for the Lake and Penborough, one of my clients for, for 12 years. I never heard that. The people at Pebble said, look, I can't guarantee that somebody's heart didn't say that, but that was never a proposal of Pebbles. Furthermore, the question of why shouldn't, why shouldn't industry look for salmon near their projects, the answer is they do. Pebble. Pebble has added 145 kilometers to the anadromous stream catalog. And they did it partially because, I don't know why, but the re other reason is because Fish and Game makes them. If you have a multi-year project, Fish and Game won't even consider your project until you've done the fish surveys, which demonstrates whether it's anadromous or not. So the some of the original question of, oh, industry doesn't do it, why do we have to? The answer is, on for large projects, Industry does it, and they're forced to do it by the Department of Fish and Game. Um, Donlin, Shuitna, Pogo, all of them had extensive fish studies, and those extensive fish studies required, were required by the, by the permitters, by Fish and Game, and to some extent by, um, uh, by I when I was working there, or, or Dick when he came after me. Yeah, Bob, we're out of time with that. Response here. Well, I'll speak at least a little bit to the pebble issue, which is what I brought up early on, was we were curious as to why we weren't seeing things pop up in the catalog back in 2008 when we finally sent a team up uh, to go and find uh, salmon on top of the, the deposit. And then when you look at the, uh, at the catalog now, you say, well, actually, they were out there, pebble was out there in 2004, and they actually found fish, uh, but they didn't report it to ADF&G until 2010. So in 2008, we had to go up and find it, and at least, so that was the, the begging question, at least for us at that time, is are there fish on the deposit? Are there fish in there? And we weren't getting a straight answer, and so we had to go up and send a team up to find out. Um, it was published in their environmental baseline document, which I agree, was until 2008, but Fish and Game was never gonna, or any of the agencies were never gonna consider a proposal from, from Pebble until such time as they'd done all those studies. And they hadn't applied by then. I just want to just add one more thing. But um, there was a case of, that was litigated as well about that pebble deposit and, and where um, there was a lot of exploration that was going on. And a lot of that exploration was going on before those, those rivers and streams were documented in the anadromous waters catalog, which means fish and game did not have the jurisdiction 
to actually issue a fish habitat permit to protect those river systems from that exploration activities that were going on. And that's just another layer of why we need to expand uh, fish and games jurisdiction and allow them to protect the rivers um, through the anadromous waters presumption. Um, all of the exploration was going on 100 feet or more from the creeks. There wasn't any creek in creek exploration. If they'd been in the catalog, the permits wouldn't have been any different. A, qu a question for the panel. Who asked that question? <laughs> Even you guys don't remember. Oh. Oh. Originally, they qu I asked the question, it was about airport mitigation. Oh, okay. That's what it was about. So, yeah. so based part. upon that, stand for salmon, you have the next question. Oh, go ahead, Emily. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> Tim, are you okay? <laughs> no. The game's over, by the way. I mean, I have some comments I'd like to make, but I will. Go ahead. All right. You want me to do that one? We're looking for questions, not All right. comments. I mean, I can ask. Uh, no, I get to ask you. All right. Uh, ballot measure one defines the proper protection of fish and game by creating common sense habitat protection standards to guide permit decisions. These standards ensure that from administration to administration, the fish habitat permitting law is applied consistently, and it helps to ensure that all decisions are science-based without political influence. In recent TV commercials, Stand for Salmon claims that the current fish habitat permitting law has strong science-based standards to protect our fisheries. Yet the law simply states the Commissioner of Fish and Games shall issue a permit unless the plans and specifications for the project are insufficient for the proper protection of fish and game. That's all it says. There is no definition for the proper protection of fish and game in any statute or regulation. How do you respond to that? I'm fine with habitat standards. I'm just not fine with these. Further, I don't, I, these are a little inflexible and they, and they don't work. But further, the standards actually should be in regulation as opposed to law. And the reason is, is because the science is continuously evolving and the regulations need to evolve with them. But, but laws just don't evolve that quickly. A good model is the Forest Practices Act, um, where they've been evolving regulations through a consensus-based process, a process, by the way, that this, this undermines. But I'm actually fine with standards. I think they should be in regulation. I'm just not fine with these in particular, which are overly rigid and aren't the standards that Fish and Game uses. Response. The standards written into the law are actually very kind of, they're broad standards. Um, the Alaska Supreme Court agreed with us that these are not prescriptive standards. The reason why you draft them broadly in a statute is for the very reason that Bob just talked about, which is you want the agency, the biologists, to be able to interpret those standards and regulation and really define what those things mean. When I talk about broad, non-prescriptive standards that are written into the actual ballot language, what we're talking about is, for instance, water quantity, making sure that we have enough water quantity in the streams for fish. Now that can be interpreted in a variety of ways. It doesn't say you have to keep every drop of water and the Supreme Court agreed with us on that. What it does say is you need to think about water quantity. We shouldn't be sucking so much water out of the streams for extractive resource industry projects that there isn't enough left for fish. And we shouldn't have to fight to maintain those waters and enough water in those streams for fish. That's what we're talking about here. They are broad standards. They are specifically broad standards to make sure they're not too prescriptive. And the Supreme Court agreed with us on that. Rebuttal. 
actually it says that you have to maintain the natural, the natural and regional flow. And you have to maintain it, of course, be in the specific stream because you can't do off-site mitigation. And so I actually believe that you should, you should maintain, maintain uh, the salmon population, which means maintaining the water. However, this doesn't, al doesn't allow you to, uh, well, let me put it a different way. All large-scale <clears throat> all large-scale projects, mining, but other things in particular, were, are going to have some effect on some stream. If you have to maintain the natural flow in all of the streams, then in fact, they'll be prohibited. So you have to do some off-site mitigation. That isn't the way the statute works. Okay, now we have a question from the audience, and this is directed to Stand for Salmon. What impact would passage of Proposition 1 have on the caseload at Alaska Department of Fish and Game? Should it require more staffing? And if so, how would, that, how would those positions be funded? And if not, if there's not enough money available to fund this, what then? <laughs> so when uh, the Department of Fish and Game uh, reviewed the ballot initiative, uh, they put down a cost estimate, essentially. Uh, state agencies are required to do that. Uh, under ballot initiatives, unlike with um, uh, legislation that's going through the state legislature, uh, they don't have to look at revenues or cost savings or anything, only a cost estimate. The Department of Fish and Game is estimating that the project will cost them $1.3 million um, per year over the next five years. A lot of that cost was associated with actually updating their database to have an online notice system, which we have for the Department of Natural Resources and the Department of Environmental Conservation already. This is just bringing fish and game up into the modern era, basically. But it is an expensive process to do so. Um, Fish and Game is not estimating uh, a lot of extra staff that's required. Um, a lot of this can be done with existing staff. And unfortunately, because it just is a cost estimate, but it's not looking at cost savings or revenues, um, it's not taking those things into account. Uh, this actual project, uh, or excuse me, the ballot measure, actually does have a lot of cost savings associated with it. There's the uh, opportunity of Fish and Game to shift the costs of essentially having to sample every single mile of every river, lake, lake, and stream in the state onto big developers. And that's how we should be doing it. The state shouldn't be footing the bill for that. The other cost saving there is also they don't have to do that anymore. They could um, use the anatomous uh, waters presumption to trigger the permit requirement without having to have, uh, spend the money to go out there and do that. Those are just some of the cost savings that the state of Alaska will enjoy under this system. And the other thing is that um, you know there's a dramatic amount of cost savings in long term uh, for the state of Alaska and making sure that we're not doing too much damage to our salmon habitat, as as I've you know referenced before with other states that are paying billions of dollars a year in restoration costs. Thank you, Bob. Or um, I think this will cost more, and I think it should be funded if it if it passes. It should be funded through the general fund. But so right now, uh, Fishing Game doesn't do a lot of public notice. They, what they do do is about 500 uh, regional permits a year, regional general permits, and um, uh, 1,500 to 4,000 uh, individual permits. 
So all of those will now require public notice. That's a significant burden. Um, and uh, just, as a, just as sort of as a reference, the whole Department of Natural Resources does about between five and 600 uh, public notices each year. So Fish and Game now would be doing somewhere between 1,500 and 4,000. Whether that's good or bad, it will cost a little more money. It should be general funded. So, or, or general funded or the developer, but it should be paid. So if it's not, what happens? Well, I think what happens that is that means that the big projects, since the big projects pay the cost of their permitting, the big projects get funded and the little guys don't. You have rebuttal here? You have an opportunity? Well, I'll say something here. Um, in many ways, I think the comparison is what Fish and Game should be doing. And again, as I mentioned before, if we were actually what really bothers me is we're really saying, you know, the, the, the streams that aren't in the catalog, in theory, are not protected by Title 16. It's incumbent upon Fish and Game and the Commissioner to go out and find all those streams and get them in the catalog so that they have the Title 16 protection. What we're not seeing is a budget that gets Fish and Game where we're seeing them going out every year doing all this cataloging work. And by their own, by their own estimates, it's uh, going to, would probably take 100 years or more to do it. So when we're looking at whether Fish and Game is going to have to spend more money, well, they're really not spending the money that should be given to them to go out and do the work under the current law. In fact, in some cases, it's been up to the NGO community, our land trust, to try to raise the money from donors and grants, uh, a lot of federal grants to go out and try to get these streams in the catalog. Uh, the presumption, I think, will make that a little bit easier. And you have the last well, word. I, I think I found a place where Tim and I can agree. And so that's kind of a plus. Um, I but think we've been at this for 10 years. This yeah, is the first time we've actually got to sit at the <laughs> no, table. No, that's, that's, yeah, that's right. Um, uh, I think if you're going to have an effect on, uh, a significant effect on the salmon, on the salmon stream, you should go out and find, or a stream, you should go out and find if there's salmon there. I, I think that's true. I do think fishing game requires that of all, the of all the major projects, and I think they still should. So on that, we can agree. Well, we have found common ground, all right. Well, it if you could get the minutes. industry to put up the 10 million that you are for this, this fight and give that to ADF and G in some fashion. Um, well, actually, uh, <laughs> I, I, we I, might be able to do something here. Um, I'm a volunteer here. So, uh, as is Tim. So I guess we both agree that we want the best for Alaska. We just don't always agree on where it comes. I have a nice little Bill, Bill Spear pen here that says, let's be chums. Let's be chums. Bill Spear pen, let's be chums. If you don't have one, it's a great one. <laughs> uh, here's a question that uh, both of you uh, could answer. Um, the questioner says, my entire life I've heard if the law passes, everyone will lose their jobs. Then the law passes, and people don't lose their jobs. Isn't this just about requiring mine developers to do a better job of fishery protection, even if it means a smaller footprint or different mine development plan? And I'll direct that to Stanford, Alaska. So I don't, 
the question is whether the mining industry should pay more. The problem with the initiative is it has much broader application. It doesn't only exist and it doesn't only apply to major projects. It applies to anyone that wants to do anything on a waterway that could be anadromous. Remember, the presumption is that they are anadromous, and it's up to the person that wants to use that waterway. It's up to that person to prove a negative. And, and that's a very difficult thing to do. The way the law is structured now, anyone, a non-government organization, private industry, the Department of Fish and Game, or others can 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 apply or, or request that the Department of Fish and Game go out and check to see if that waterway is in an adverse fish habitat. How is it possible to prove a negative, to prove that that rivulet, that, uh, that upper stream never was, never could be in an adverse fish habitat? That's the extent that this law provides, and that's what I'm concerned about. Response? Yes, please. But under the current law, we require the fish to prove the positive. <laughs> and if somebody isn't standing up for the fish, whether it be hopefully fish and game, it's like they're not there. And the industry, because it's not in the catalog, uh, you know, that's where they look. In theory, they could go out and, you know, the fish and game has no jurisdiction. In fact, we kind of ran up against that a little bit in a, in a small mining project going forward in the Mill Rock area on the Nushigak, uh, where uh, uh, going in for exploration and nobody really knew about the permits. Uh, Fish and Game didn't issue any habitat permits. DNR did issue a lot of temporary water use permits. And our issue was, wait a minute, if there's going to be something going on up there and this might potentially be a mineral development, why aren't we seeing the mining company also searching for fish. In that case, we actually asked them and they offered to give us helicopter service to do that. Uh, but we still had to raise some like $50,000 to get up uh, into that area ahead of the mining company. So we're, we're you know, the um, fish have to prove they're there. Actually, the, Mill Rock would have had to prove the fish were there or not there. Before, they would, before you can accept a permit for a mine, you have to know about the fish. Mill Rock was 10 to 15 years ahead of whether they were ever thinking there was going to be a mine. And since then, they've abandoned the location, so there wasn't going to be a mine. So they, the way they schedule it is they typically decide if there's going to be ore before they start doing all the environmental work. And they just hadn't got to the environmental work there. But they would have been forced to. And that's the right thing to do because fish, you should be looking for fish as you're required to before you do any one of these projects that would have significant effects. Would you like to continue or move on? We're going to move on. Okay. Um, this is a question uh, directed to Stan for Alaska. Uh, it says, I am a high school student who is wondering what standards does the surrounding wildlife of a tributary need to be to satisfy the people who do not support ballot measure one? Could you repeat that? I'll repeat it. I'm a high school student who is wondering what standards does the surrounding wildlife of a tributary need to be to satisfy the people who do not support ballot measure one? If I understand the question, the, the standard that would make that makes sense and that's comfortable for me is the standard that we currently have, which allows state agencies, including the Department of Fish and Game, to weigh and balance all of our natural resources. We've heard tonight several examples of salmon are a public asset. It's a natural resource. 
but there are other natural resources that under the Alaska Constitution are entitled to be developed for the benefit of all Alaskans. This initiative puts salmon as the primary and sole consideration in projects that may or may not affect an adverse fish habitat. The current approach allows for a balancing between different competing interests, including other natural resources. Stand for salmon. Well, what the ballot initiative is actually seeking to do is, is basically restore that balance that we've lost. Um, the question is a good one because there was a, there was a comment earlier on about, you know, the, about wildlife habitat and now we're going to have to, you know, make sure that we're going to have to get a fish habitat permit if a moose walks across our yard. And, you know, clearly that's, that's not the case. The reason why there's a reference to wildlife in the fish habitat initiative uh, is simply because the current law protects both fish and game because we know that there are some game species and wildlife species that depend heavily on anadromous streams and anadromous fish habitat and those corridors uh, and those corridor areas. And they should be a consideration, especially given game like moose that are really, really critical subsistence um, subsistence resources for many, many communities. And so if you're thinking about disrupting an anadromous stream, oftentimes moose do come into contact with those anadromous streams, and we do have to think about disturbance to those, those species. That's why we're talking about that. Um, and I think that's all I'm going to say. Okay. <laughs> so here's a question for Stan for Salmon. Um, and we've gotten a number of questions involving uh, the impacts from the commercial fishing industry. So I tried to find a question that sort of kind of puts them together. Um, if you want strong, healthy fish, wouldn't a stricter regulation on commercial fishing be more productive? Currently, commercial fishing boats have minimal regulations on how they dispose of their gray and black water, especially when dumping it into the ocean. What are your thoughts on that? Can start. Well, I guess I'm just not that familiar with that issue. I mean, I have been out on a Bristol Bay drift boat, and you know, things happen when you're out on a Bristol Bay drift boat. Um, but I guess all we can say there is certainly because uh, the state took over management of the fisheries back in 1959, and you know, the state was actually, it may be funded now on, on oil and maybe it was actually founded on salmon. Um, and since then, we have had uh, uh, some of the biggest returns in Bristol Bay, uh, certainly this year and last year. Um, and a lot of that is because we've had good habitat. I, so I can't speak directly to the issue of, of discharges into the bay. Can you? Stand for, oh, Emily, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. You have that's one good. minute. Okay. Um, this is a question for both sides. Um, and it's, uh, today, what happens to people who violate existing laws and harm salmon habitat? This is a question that I actually legitimately have for Ms. Anderson. Under the current law, fish habitat law, you can be held you can be held accountable criminally. That is, you can be prosecuted only if 
only if you cause material damage <clears throat> to an anadromous fish habitat. So as a prosecutor, having prosecuted one of these cases, what you have to prove is that a person knowingly caused material damage to an anadromous fish habitat. I am frankly concerned, and I think this has gotten very little attention, I'm very concerned about the dramatic expansion of potential criminal liability under this initiative. Under this initiative, if it passes, a person who with criminal negligence violates or permits a violation of the statute could be held guilty or could be found guilty of a Class A misdemeanor. Criminal negligence is a very low standard. It's the lowest standard in criminal law, and it says that a person who fails to perceive a substantial and unjustifiable risk that the result will occur or that the circumstance exists. So essentially, you could have that waterway that Bob described that you didn't realize was an anadromous fish habitat, and if you divert, use, or otherwise obstruct that waterway, and you didn't know you did it, but you should have, you could be held accountable criminally. Now, the easy response to that is to say, oh, come on, prosecutors wouldn't prosecute that case. That's, a, that's not the kind of case that they prosecute. And that's probably true. But when we pass laws, we're sending messages about what our societal standards are. And this law, if, pass, if it passes, is sending a message that you can inadvertently walk over a waterway, not know that it's a salmon habitat, and you could be held accountable liable. You could be held uh, accountable criminally. That's a concern that I have about the message that it sends. Thank you. Stand for salmon. Well, I think the actuality of, you know, whether or not you actually prosecute is much different than the, the message that it sends. And I think what we see is that um, the ballot initiative offers Fish and Game a variety of tools to be able to enforce the permits, but they don't have under current law. One of those tools are also civil fines, which are kind of the go-to, generally speaking, in natural resource um, determinations, especially like in, you know, DEC has the ability to issue civil, civil fines. Um, also, you know, DNR also has that, that opportunity and that ability to do that to help enforce their permits. And that gives Fish and Game that same, same option. And, you know, it, it takes a lot for a prosecutor, as, as Clint mentioned, to take a case, a criminal case, unless it's really, really egregious. And that's essentially what the ballot initiative is setting up. Um, because there's these other enforcement mechanisms and that the criminal enforcement mechanism isn't the only one. There's also bailable citations, which is, for the first time, Fish and Game would actually be able to issue tickets for folks that are, you know, running around in salmon habitat on their four-wheelers and ripping it up like that happens in the valley. And so, you know, that would be something, I mean, if fishing game can issue a ticket for somebody who's fishing and doesn't have their license on them, they should be able to issue a ticket, a simple ticket, to help make sure that um, fish habitat isn't getting ripped up either. Clint? What I heard was that she agrees with me that it does expand the potential liability for being prosecuted there's an open question about whether the case would be prosecuted or not, but there's no dispute that it does expand criminal liability. The Department of Fish and Game now has the authority to issue a citation for someone who knowingly causes material damage to an adverse fish habitat with a four-wheeler or otherwise. That currently exists in the law. Okay, I have another question. And if I read the crowd cor correctly, there's probably a number of people um, asking this same question, at least when they came in the room. It is simply, I agree that permitting standards need to be strengthened and updated. But I also agree that ballot measure one goes too far, unduly encumbering small local projects. Is it better to vote yes and rely on the legislature and Department of Fish and Game to fine tune it, or vote no and ask the legislature and Department of Fish and Game to draft something better? Who wants to take that? Well, that, that 
that articulates the position that, that I hold on this, which is, you know, there are, there are a variety of ways for us to send messages to our elected leaders through the election itself, through a variety of ways that we can send messages. If, if at the end of this process, the measure fails, which I think it should, but there's a heightened awareness about what our current permitting standards are, and that has enthused people to provide more public input, then this exercise has been worthwhile. But it, this, this ballot measure should not pass. We cannot rely <clears throat> on the legislature with all that they have to, to deal with this spring or this, this winter. We cannot expect them to fine tune a law that after two hours, I don't think anyone is necessarily comfortable with what it exactly means. Emily? Uh, well, I think that the actual the impacts or the perceived impacts of the ballot initiative have been incredibly overstated. Uh, there's a vast misinformation campaign that's going on right now by um, well-funded opposition that has $11 million to spend on this. And what I can tell you is that over the last 40 years, the Department of Fish and Game from time to time has been making recommendations to the legislature to update this law. The Board of Fish asked the legislature to update this law. The problem is, is that the legislature has not taken action. If we don't do this through a ballot initiative, I do not believe that we will see a stronger fish habitat protection law in this state. And do you want to respond? You're more than welcome to respond. Most of these standards fish and game could do without the law, they could do with regs. If they did it in regulation, then we would, be, we would be able to update it. There's very little in the standards that requires a law. Fish and Game has proposed two regulatory packages in the 80s and in the 90s that were extremely comprehensive, that were absolutely crushed by industry opposition and never got passed, never saw the light of the day. I would love to see Fish and Game put together a comprehensive regulatory package, but that's not going to happen either. I'm a, so I'm going to reserve the right to ask a question. And I think you'll like it. Um, Emily referred to it, but I want to give Stan for Alaska a chance, and, and both of you. Um, there's been a lot of money spent in this campaign, a lot of information um, in 30-second uh, segments. I would like you each to analyze the veracity of your opponent's advertising and spots. The unique thing is I'm not part of the advertising campaign on Stanford, Alaska, neither is Bob. Um, what, I, what I've said is what I have concluded based on my own analysis. And whether that, I don't know what they'll say. I mean, they disagree with me. Um, the, what I'm concerned about is, is advertising that suggests that if you vote no for ballot measure number one, your, your freezer won't have salmon in it next summer. That's misleading. Your sa the, the, the salmon habitat are healthy. Even Tim acknowledged, surprise, not surprisingly, but he said, the last two years we've had some of the biggest salmon returns in Bristol Bay, which makes my point, which is our salmon habitat are adequately protected under current law. And stand for salmon. Well, as you all know, we haven't been up on the airways very much because we don't have much money. But. <laughs> um, when I, when I actually think about what the opposition messaging is, I mean, I've seen it just like all of you have. I mean, it's, you know, doom and gloom. I mean, we're gonna lose all of our jobs. We'll never have, you know, be able to pull ourselves out of this economic hole anymore. You know, um, add it, oh wait, 
the, the newest one, I love this newest one, um, we have the most rigorous permitting process ever, um, which clearly we don't. Um, you know, a lot of it is, quite frankly, scare tactics. I mean, I think that it is disingenuous. I think there's a lot of misinformation. When you don't have the facts on your side, you create a lot of confusion and misinformation. That's my assessment of the other side's campaign plan. All right, and we now just have enough time for each of you to give a closing statement. And uh, because we began with uh, Stand for Alaska, uh, Stan, I mean Stand for Salmon, Stand for Alaska, you will have the last word. So Stand for Salmon, you have two minutes. Well, thanks everybody again for coming out. Um, I know you've had to listen to a bunch of lawyers talk back and forth. And oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, Bob. I'm don't mean, I don't. I don't mean to insult, but insult you by calling you a lawyer. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I just want to kind of close and address a final point. Um, and honestly, it's it's more of a cautionary tale than anything else. In 1996, the Department of Fish and Game published an article and sent this to the legislature. Uh, the title, Can Alaska Balance Habitat and, and Growth? Biologi in a biologist perspective. And you know this discussion has been going on for a long time. This was a 1996 published article. And here's what a passage from it. In the Pacific Northwest, declining salmon populations have coincided with resource uses incompatible with sustainable management of the whole ecosystem. Declines in salmon production due to habitat loss are masks and hard to detect relative to the time frame of institutional decision making. The failure of institutions to adequately protect the resources over the rights of the entrepreneur is predictable because it's usually politically easier to favor economic growth over conservation. And by the time the affected natural resources have collapsed, the original policymakers are usually gone, leaving a fresh group of policymakers to respond to the public outcry to bring back the lost resources. That's not what we want for our state. But well, we're already starting to see the impacts of habitat loss in the state of Alaska. The Matsu is a prime example. The bottom line is this. There is a problem, but we are not too far gone that it can't be addressed. We have the benefit of hindsight in Alaska. We can see what happened in the lower 48, and we can predict what will happen here if we don't take this opportunity to pass an important law. My hope for our future, and I believe it's shared by many Alaskans, is that we learn from the past and choose a different path. That we resist those who make claims that protecting one of our most treasured resources is somehow anti-Alaskan. In fact, protecting our salmon for future generations is about as Alaskan as it gets. You can find more information about the ballot measure one and all the Alaskans who support it at standforsalmon.org, and I really hope that you will join us and vote yes on ballot measure one on Thank November you. 6th. Thank you. Stand for Alaska, I'm gonna give you two minutes and 15 seconds. Thank you. So in my former role as a prosecutor, I was obligated not to misrepresent the facts that are presented in a presentation. And here it is today. I started by saying that I believe that this initiative, if passed, would be harmful to our economy, that it will make it harder for projects to get permitted, it'll, make it, it'll slow down the process, and there's nothing that you've heard today that would suggest that I was wrong in that assertion. So we can all walk away from this tonight understanding that if this initiative passes, it's going to make it more difficult, more expensive for industry to develop all of our natural resources. I also asserted that our salmon habitat are healthy. And 
I could not have made the point as well as Mr. Troll made the point when he said we've had record runs in Bristol Bay for the last two years, proving the point that our habitat are healthy. I'm not engaging in any misinformation here, and I don't know about the money that's gone to support both sides. What I understand is that this is a very complex issue, and it's not reasonable to ask Alaskans to vote yes or no without any further discussion about what these words mean. I'll, I'll close with this. Ms. Anderson read a, a passage from an article from 1996 that said, can Alaska balance habitat and growth? The answer is yes, and we have, and we will continue to do so under current law. We don't need this initiative. Our current laws are adequate. Fish and Game is competent in their methods to permit and, and approve projects. And I urge you to vote no on ballot measure number one. Thank you. So I have a question. We are, and I do want you to thank the panelists in just a moment. We started this evening two hours ago, and I asked the question, how many of you are still undecided? about how to vote on this issue. I'd like to see a show of hands now if you are still undecided. Man, we blew it. Okay. No, if you, there, there, are, there are fewer that did. Um, I think this would be an appropriate time to thank our panelists. Thank you as well to, uh, to Common Ground. Thank you to Alaska 49th Brewery. The beer is cold, the pizza is hot, and I'm going to let Dick uh, say goodnight. Again, I just want to thank you for coming on behalf of Alaska Common Ground. And if you like events like this, uh, we welcome donations, we welcome membership. See Kari right by the door there if you'd like to sign up for Alaska Common Ground. And thank you. And I think the panelists will stick around for a few minutes if you want to ask questions of them.